So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. It seems that uh, Taylor Swift is having something of a cultural moment. For those of us who do not track so closely, that's a bit surprising, as it seems she's been doing quite well for over a decade now. Uh, But a few weeks ago, I saw a headline that pointed to a new ascendancy in Taylor Swift's cultural domination. The headline declared, Taylor Swift is finally winning over the alpha male. I don't totally know what that means, but at the least, it seems to suggest that people you wouldn't expect, perhaps, to like Taylor Swift's music are being drawn under her influence, won over to her, going to her concerts, entering into her orbit in some way. Hard turn right coming up. In a similar way in our gospel reading today, (laughs) Jesus has an interaction with someone who is unexpectedly drawn into his influence and perhaps, perhaps beginning to be won over to him. Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this member of the Jewish ruling council, Taylor Swift and the alpha males, Jesus and the Pharisees, the rulers, unexpected fans, I think. This morning, I want to focus on the character of Nicodemus and his interaction with Jesus to explore a little bit about what's going on here and to inform our own journeying with Jesus, our own drawing near to him. Alpha males or not, you are invited for the journey. Now, verse one reads, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Immediately, that description, if you have been following along with John's gospel, should have us associating Nicodemus with the bad guys. It's the Pharisees who, in John 1, send interrogators to come after John the Baptist. Moving forward, if you're familiar with the story, if you've spent any time at a church, you'll know it's the Pharisees, among others, who will oppose Jesus, who repeatedly question him, who seek his arrest, who support his execution. And chances are you've absorbed this negative impression of the Pharisees. No one wants to be called a Pharisee or Pharisaical. They are the bad guys. But a curious thing about Nicodemus here is that he is approaching Jesus. He's drawing near to the one who John, the writer of this gospel, has already said is the word made flesh, the center of the story, the good guy. One biblical scholar describes Nicodemus here as open to a positive trajectory. That is open to Jesus. And in this way, as a Pharisee, as a ruler in the Jewish council, Nicodemus is a massively important figure in the Gospel of John. Do you remember years ago, that Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ? I don't know how I got it to seminary. I've never even seen the movie. I don't know. It's like not a rule. You have to watch it in order to become a pastor or priest. But I've never seen it. But it sparked tons of controversy. If you were around 20 years ago, you'll remember And one aspect of the controversy related to that film, that retelling of Jesus' life, arose because the writers, Gibson among others, drew extensively from the Gospel of John. And one reading of the Gospel of John 
is of the text, of the text is of it as inherently anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. And there is, as you read the Gospel of John, this opposition between Jesus and Jewish figures and the people described as the Jews. And in the crucifixion story, John makes a point identifying the gathered Jewish people as complicit in his crucifixion. And tragically, the text of John has actually been used by Christians in history as a pretext for anti-Semitic behavior. That is terrible and to be repented of. But this is where a figure like Nicodemus becomes so very important. Because as a member of the Pharisees, the Jewish ruling council, he is what the Apostle Paul might describe as a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? The quintessential Jewish figure. And so his presence here and his openness to this positive trajectory with Jesus, engagement with Jesus, suggests that with a careful reading of the Gospel of John, we see a dichotomy perhaps, not so much between Jesus himself a Jew and the Jewish people, but some other kind of binary, some other kind of opposition. That is, as we read the text carefully, there is this opposition between unbelief, characterized by darkness, the world, sin and evil, with belief and the light and life that characterizes Jesus' life and the community around him. There is an up-and-coming New Testament scholar at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom named Andrew Byers, who's written about this reading, this kind of more careful reading, I would suggest, in a book, a wonderful book called Jesus and the Others. And some of you will know that this isn't the last time we see Nicodemus in the story. He returns to defend Jesus in John chapter 7. And then after the crucifixion, he participates in caring for, honoring Jesus' body alongside Joseph of Arimathea, this other establishment Jewish figure. And that suggests, hints, that in some way Nicodemus is fulfilling this positive journey, walking in it, moving from darkness, coming here in the night to step more fully into the light. In this way, Nicodemus is important for our reading of the Gospel of John. He's kind of like this interpretive key or clue. But he's also, in this way, an example for us to be followed. Whatever our position, whatever our relation to Jesus, his trajectory moving further in, further along to public honoring and associating with Jesus, moving further into the light is one for us all to follow. This is, in fact, a major reason why we are reading through the Gospel of John, that we might follow the same path, that we might press further into life with Jesus, that we together, individually, might step further into the light in whatever way in our lives move from the darkness of unbelief into the light and life of faith in Christ. Wherever you are in your life with God, the invitation for you today is, as C.S. Lewis has put it, is further up and further in. And like I said, one element of Nicodemus' trajectory is this growing public identification with Jesus. He comes in secret here. He identifies him as a teacher sent from God. He's kind of has part of the picture. But he struggles with what Jesus names as unbelief, you'll notice. And then in John 7, he defends Jesus among the Pharisees in this kind of general way. He doesn't want him to be prejudged as guilty. And then in John 19, 
he's subtly included among the disciples of Jesus, caring for him. What's going on here? This public recognition, this public identification connected with this journeying closer into Jesus. The 20th century author Upton Sinclair once famously wrote, it's difficult to get someone to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. That is, when someone is invested in not accepting the reality, the truth you're pointing out. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and recognizes his status as a teacher sent from God. Yet he also comes as someone deeply invested in the status quo, a member of the ruling council with status and power himself. He's a member of the Pharisees, this group of particularly rigorous Jews who took their ritual purity, their control, their cleanliness incredibly seriously. And he had political power. He had influence. N.T. Wright has suggested that this emphasis the Pharisees had on cleanliness and purity was a natural response to how out of control the people of Israel would have felt at this time in history. First, uh, last century BC, first century AD, colonized by Rome, in some ways still experiencing themselves as in exile, downtrodden. People without much control over their lives will often become hyper-controlling over what they can exert influence over. And the origin of the name Pharisee is not fully clear, but something of a consensus is gathered around the, the definition of sharp or accurate, right? They're the sharp ones, the accurate ones. And that suggests the seriousness, the rigor with which they lived, the control, the desire to be correct. Some of you can all identify with this, right? You're stressed about the situation at work and all of a sudden your kitchen floor has to be really clean or the clutter has got to be organized. I have to exert control here. And all of that, the investment in the status quo, the need for control is part of what makes Nicodemus' initial approach to Jesus all that more remarkable, as well as his eventual public association with Jesus. He has a lot to lose. His identity and place in society is built around getting it right. So to come before Jesus, who's already been stirring things up, as we saw last week in the temple and a few weeks ago with the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Coming to him, recognizing him as a teacher sent by God is for Nicodemus potentially very costly. It is risky. And knowing that Nicodemus comes like this, how does Jesus respond? Not perhaps as we might expect. Jesus does, I'm going to be honest, does not demonstrate a ton of empathy in this exchange on first reading. From this passage, Jesus might not be someone we would select for the greeter team here at Church of the Cross. So you're like, customer service, Jesus. He's coming. You got to sell him a little bit. No, not at all. Jesus does not say, I know it's been hard for you to come like this. Let me make it easy for you from here on out. He does not make it easier. Rather, Jesus tells him something like this. Let me show you just how much you have to risk. Let me tell you just how vulnerable you must become. It's not enough to acknowledge me as teacher. If you want to see the kingdom, if you want to see the grace of God, there's a fuller, more complete, extensive acknowledgement, confession of who I am. 
And that confession involves complete surrender of your mastery, your control, of your status. And for how confounded Nicodemus is in this moment, like how does this work? He catches something of what Jesus is getting at here. New Testament writer Marianne Thompson, scholar, points out that Nicodemus understands that being born anew, seeing the kingdom of God, as Jesus puts it, involves drastic revision, a total reorientation of his life, of his commitments, as complete as being born again. What Jesus is describing here is a drastic and difficult thing for someone in Nicodemus's position, but for us all. It involves this letting go of life's previous orientation, this laying hold of a new and wholly dependent posture before God, before Jesus. And Nicodemus is not ready for it. Here in John chapter 3, he's not able to take the risk. What I want to emphasize this morning is that this posture of risk, this reorientation, this renovation, this drastic work, is part of both beginning with God as well as a part of our continued developing walk with Him. It is always part of our movement from darkness to light, from unbelief to belief. Do you want to see the kingdom? You must be willing to risk. We live with a great deal of control over our lives. Right? The smartphone, primary message to me from my smartphone is I am in charge. We live with the ability to manage so much of our lives. But what Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to in our reading, seeing the kingdom of God, comes only in the context of risk and dependence, comes only through the surrender of our mastery. It is in our vulnerability, our dependence upon God, so often arising in our situations of suffering, that we most clearly apprehend the work of God, that we most clearly discern the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we see the grace of God. It's when we're stripped of those things that we use to secure ourselves in an insecure world that we come to see the kingdom more fully. Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who know their poverty, who recognize that what they have is not worth anything in comparison of what they can gain in Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who are willing to risk it all for the surpassing beauty and goodness of Jesus, who will above all else to see him, to see his kingdom. It's only by risking that we come to know Jesus as the light, the light of the world and our light. Faith itself is a risk. Taking Jesus at his word, betting your life that he is who he says he is, that the promises are true. And from there, all the little acts of faith are themselves risks. Something as simple as your devotional practice praying the daily office, taking your quiet time with the Bible. That is a risk. It's giving that time over to God's purposes, believing that it will bear fruit. Choosing the way of the cross, the way of self-giving love, extending yourself to others in humility, forgiving, being forgiven. That's a risk. 
Letting go of those things in our lives, good things that we use to make ourselves independent and self-sufficient. That too is the way of risk, of faith, of growing in belief. When you are generous and sacrificial, when you are hospitable to those who cannot repay you, you are risking for the sake of Jesus. And by such risks, we come to meet and know him more fully. This morning, I want to encourage you in the practice of risking for the sake of Jesus. To consider the implications of his encounter here with Nicodemus for your own life. What might it mean for you to more fully revise your life in light of the truth of who Jesus is? Not just a teacher come from God, but very God from very God. The embodied word. What might it mean to take his claims, the claims about him and his resurrection more seriously in your life? As formative for the ways that you engage your neighbors, your family members, your enemies, for the ways you use your body, your finances, your time. Take a risk that you might enter more fully into the light. What risk is there for you to take that you could see the kingdom more completely? that you might know the grace of God more deeply. You might be at a loss of what such a risk could look like. As a risk, you could ask God to make that clear to you. In community, talk with others. Take that risk. And I recognize that for some of us, this very idea is challenging or difficult. We stand with Nicodemus and you're like, I've already risked a lot. And Jesus is calling to give up even more, risking even more. That's daunting. I can identify with that. There are times when it feels like the call of Romans 12 to offer our bodies, ourselves, all that we are as living sacrifices feels like too much. The ask is too great. Beyond what we can do in our weakness, our need to, to feel secure is too great. I can identify with that. Engaging with that thought, I want to say two things in closing. The first is this, that the work of being born anew from above is the work of God. The work of the Spirit. This is Jesus' point in Nicod to Nicodemus. This is beyond your control. The wind, the breath goes where it will. And I think today there's an appropriate challenge for each of us, for our community, to think about what does it mean to live out our dependence upon God, to readily, more readily risk and pursue his way in the fullness of our lives. I think there's a call on us to do that. But there's also this beautiful promise in the words of the Old Testament reading, Isaiah 42, that God says, I will take your hand. We are, are talking about becoming people who are responsive and open, longing for the work of the Spirit, who are receptive and ready to receive and respond to his leading, the initiative is with God. You do not earn the right to see the kingdom of God. It's not like you risk enough, so then you get in. You see it now. It's always his gracious gift. And what we are talking about when we talk about letting go of those things that we rely upon, about risking for him, is becoming people who see and receive the generosity, the grace of his kingdom. That is what the invitation is to the initiative is always with God.
So even as it is daunting, rely upon him. Call upon him. I know that you're calling me to risk, to to greater faith. Help my unbelief. That is a good place to start. The second thing I want to say in closing is that Jesus and his kingdom are worth the risk. Any risk. Whatever in your life might hold you back from stepping more fully into the light, more closely into life with Jesus, it is worth giving up worth risking, worth losing for the sake of him and his kingdom. That is the pearl of great price, this treasure of surpassing worth. He is worth the risk. But how can we say that? How can you know, you might ask? Well, above all, we can say that he is worth the risk because he thought of us. He thought of creation as worth the risk. That is what the Gospel of John is declaring to us. That God in perfection, in perfect glory, looked upon his broken, fallen, in rebellion creation and deemed it worth the risk. The risk of his only begotten son, the risk of taking on flesh, of entering into that rebellion, that brokenness, that suffering. He thought it worth the risk. And this point is actually driven home in the closing verses of our reading today. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus refers to this moment in Israel's history, written about in Numbers 21, when the people of God are under his judgment for rebellion, and they're being attacked by these snakes, poisonous snakes. And as a way of deliverance, God tells Moses to put this bronze sculpture of a snake on a pole, so that everyone who looks at this statue being carried around is delivered, is healed, they live. It's a very strange story. It's definitely one of those Bible stories, like I wish someone had a camcorder around for that. But the very image of their judgment and their suffering, their image of their rebellion becomes the means of deliverance, of healing for them. And Jesus points to this episode and says, in the same way, I have to be lifted up. Just like that bronze image of the snake, people have to look upon me high and lifted up that they might live. I must become the image of their judgment and suffering, taking upon myself their rebellion, that they might look upon me and be delivered. And just like the snake on that pole in John's gospel, we see Jesus do this, lifted high on the cross, an image of shame, of rebellion, an image of judgment. And in looking upon him, we are delivered. We find life in the place we least expect it. It's a very strange story. But it's just like the Israelites in Numbers 21. Just like that. With one crucial difference. The bronze serpent on the pole is an inanimate object. It has no will. It has no capacity to risk. But Jesus as God from God, as the Word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity, has agency and will. And he chooses to become the means by which we are saved, by which we are delivered. No one takes his life. He lays it down. That is, he risks, he risks it all for the sake of the Father whom he perfectly loves and trusts, but he risks it for creation for you and I as well, 
Jesus looked upon and experienced the full brokenness and evil of this world, of our making, our doing. And he thought all the while, the world is worth the risk. He thought of you. He looked on you. He looked upon you in love and thought, worth the risk, worth the laying down of my own life, worth seeing this through to the end. Your deliverance, our receiving of eternal life, the remaking of creation was worth the risk to him. That is why we can say at long last with confidence that he and his kingdom are worth the risk, any risk at all. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious and almighty God, we ask now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would move among us, and even in the quiet of these moments, stir in our hearts the truth of your great love for us, the truth of your willingly giving of yourself, for our deliverance, our salvation. And would you also now, Holy Spirit, move in such a way that you would communicate clearly to each of us what it might mean for us to, to draw near in faith, what it might mean to follow Nicodemus's trajectory and draw near to you who are the light of the world. that we might see the kingdom, that we might see the grace of God. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.